Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Evan Ratliff. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Max. I'm excited to know who you have on the show this week. I'm excited to tell you that it is Nona Willis-Aranowitz. She has worked at all kinds of places in her journalistic career, Splinter, Good Magazine. She is the uh, sex and love columnist for Teen Vogue right now, but... She just released a new book. It is, in fact, called Bad Sex, Truth, Pleasure, and an Unfinished Revolution. And it's kind of like three books in one. So part of it is a memoir about her own sex life, love life. It starts with her marriage ending. That is related to the title, Bad Sex. It's part of why her marriage ends. Mm -hmm. So one part of the book sort of follows Nona's exploration for her own desire and pleasure But then she also frames all of that in this deep historical research about feminists over the last several centuries, actually, who have done the same kind of work and thinking about this gap between your values and the way you lived your life. And then the third part of the book is that her mother was a woman named Ellen Willis, who was a rock critic, but also this huge figure of second wave feminism. And so... The book is also kind of a biography of her mother, and her mom is kind of a bridge between these two other ones. So it's an incredibly complicated and quite ambitious endeavor. And uh, it was really interesting to talk to her about how you weave these three books into one and how you choose what to put in about your own story and what you don't. We talked about all kinds of stuff. It was great. Our show is produced in partnership with Vox. As always, we thank them. We thank you for listening. And now here's Max with Nona Willis-Aranowitz. Hi, Nona. Hi, Max. Thanks for doing the uh, the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I love this podcast, so I'm so happy to be here. And congrats on this book. I have to tell you, uh, in the tradition of the show, I feel like I should ask you about your like start as a journalist and all of your various jobs you've had and good magazine and splinter and writing a column for teen vogue and all of these uh journeys that you have had in media uh but i'm not i'm not gonna do it if that's okay (laughs) because uh, i just finished your book and i was quite blown away by your book and i want to talk about your book can we just talk about your book is that okay let's talk about the book can you like succinctly describe what the book is? I don't know if I could do it justice. How, how would you describe this thing? Um, it's a multi-genre book. So I understand why you have trouble 
explaining it. But the way I explain it is that it's sort of a half memoir, half social history, and sort of a family history of the unfinished business of the sexual revolution, especially when it comes to female desire through the lens of feminism. And it pulls together a lot of characters in history that I turned to when I had a crisis in my life, or a bunch of crises, actually. And I sort of sought advice from them, including a historical figure who is also my mom, Ellen Willis, who was part of the second wave of feminism. She was a early radical pro-sex feminist, and she sort of served as the bridge between that social history and my own story, because she was part of both. I feel like um, we need to spend some time talking about her because you can't really understand the book without understanding who your mother is. But before we even get there, just so people can understand it, it's like um, every chapter is broken up into a different topic and sort of period in your life. So like there's a chapter on marriage. There's a chapter on monogamy. There's a chapter on queer history. There's uh, a chapter called Bad Sex, and there's a chapter called Good Sex. At one point, you described the memoir part, at least, as um, sort of a quest for erotic enlightenment. And then your mother is sort of coming in between each of these things and sort of acts as a bridge, both her public writing, but then also you dive a lot into her personal writing. And I guess to start, just can you help me understand how you arrived at that structure? Because from my vantage point, it seemed like a high degree of difficulty of a way to write a book. When did you arrive at that structure and and was it as hard as it seemed from the outside? It was insanely hard. And actually, when I was looking for an agent, several agents told me, I like this idea, but I think it should only be a memoir, or I like this idea, but I think it should only be sort of a social or political history. Did you take that as a challenge? Yeah, I mean, I ignored them because history is so baked into my personal journey, and I don't actually think it's like my personal journey is that interesting without it. Like it, it is and it isn't. Like I don't have like a remarkable life. I just think I have a remarkable perspective on how my sex and love life has been affected by history. And I I think I have a unique way of processing what's gone on in my life, which is by genuinely just reading everything I can about what the revolutionaries of yore did in my same situation. I don't think that many people do that, but I, that's what I was genuinely doing. Like, it's not a literary device, you know? It's actually how it went down. When I was going through my divorce and then the subsequent sexual exploration, I was actually also reading all of these books. Then, of course, when I was writing the book, I read additional text that then totally upended my idea of what I thought I wanted to write. I mean, which which happens to every book writer, but I wanted to choose the characters in that vast history that really got to me and really taught me something while I was going on this journey. I love the idea that you were like going on dates and then the next morning, like going to the library and researching what (laughs) happened. That does, that does seem like a rare way of processing (laughs) one sex life. 
Uh, I mean, it wasn't that literal, but yeah, it was sort of like that. I was, I would go through a phase. Well, first I would consult my mom's writing. I think that was more natural for me because she died when I was 22. She wrote about a lot of topics that I was just starting to go through in my early thirties. Up until then it had been kind of theoretical and abstract for me, but she wrote most about sex and the sexual revolution and feminism when she was in her thirties. So finally we had this sort of parallel journey and I was rereading her work for a completely different reason, for kind of like a substitute for advice because she wasn't around to give me advice. And even if she were around, she wasn't, she wasn't really the type to give advice. So I was sort of searching for answers in her work, but then doing that sort of made me feel like I could do that with other feminist writing. And a lot of feminist writing is very personal. You know, that phrase, the, the personal is political is like a key second wave concept. Um, and so there were, there's just like a huge amount of personal narrative during this time and a huge amount of, I mean, feminism, especially the second wave of feminism is a very sort of like written down movement. There were a lot of writers and thinkers and activists who really were very good communicators. So there's just like a huge amount of stuff to sift through. And some of this stuff, I feel like people reach for the same few sources every time they talk about this era. And I wanted to sort of go beyond those. And those sources were in my mom's archives. Those sources were in the New York Public Library. I mean, that place is amazing. I don't know if you've been there <laughs> lately. But <laughs> there was actually a period of time after I left my job at Splinter in 2018 when I literally was all up in the library reading these kind of esoteric texts. <laughs> um, because that, I mean, the Rose Reading Room, man, it's, it's a vibe. Did the work you were doing in the Rose Reading Room allow you some sort of grace with yourself that hadn't been there in the moment? Like knowing that all of these people before you had wrestled with these same questions about monogamy and the search for pleasure and, and, and all of these huge questions you were wrestling with, did it help you give yourself a break? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's why I opened the book with the consciousness raising sessions of the late 60s, which was the very, very beginning of a, a vast and varied second wave feminist movement. Essentially, it was just women sharing stories about their lives. And one of the results was that people felt less alone and people did sort of put their lives in context of other people's lives. And that's exactly what I was doing by reading these women, both their writing and about their lives. Like in most cases, when I'm writing about women from history, I'm interested in how their politics square with their personal lives. I think that some historians, it's like nails on a chalkboard to them to do this. You know, like the important thing is the work and the important thing is the activism. Why are you delving into their personal lives? But for me, that's the whole entire question of feminism, like, or one of the major feminist questions is how do you square your personal life, your love life, your sex life, your emotional life, which can be incredibly tumultuous and confusing. Um, how do you square that with 
with these like cut and dried politics that are supposed to have this moral clarity. That's an interesting way of thinking about the book that I hadn't totally wrapped my head around that like you, Nona, the daughter of this sort of like towering figure of second wave feminism grew up in New York city, went to Wesleyan had been writing about feminist politics for years and years. I mean, that was, if not all of your beat, a significant portion of what you've been covering and writing about as a journalist. And I hadn't quite realized or thought about the book as you trying to square those politics with your sex life and your romantic life, which were sort of like more, uh, had more questions in them than your politics did, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the nature of desire is a major question of the book. Like first, there's the first few chapters, which determines that following your desire is very important. It's very important to me personally, and it's also politically important. But then once you start following your desire, it can be kind of, it can throw you. I mean, (laughs) first of all, it's hard to know what you want without any outside influences. It's in fact impossible to do that. And I guess I'm very prone to outside influences and expectations because I felt them coming from all sides. You know, I felt them coming from a more conservative side, a more mainstream side of this is what your love life should look like. And then I felt it coming from a radical side of you should be more adventurous. You should be more creative and have more imagination. And why do you like these things that are so conventional? I mean, all kinds of influences were, were knocking around inside my head. And, I, and when you're really trying to actively and consciously harness your desire, that can be a struggle, you know? That can be exhausting. <laughs> when you sat down to write the book, had you basically closed that gap for yourself? Like, did you know when you sat down to write where you had landed or did writing itself help you figure that out? I absolutely did not know where I had landed um, until like the last five pages. And I still, I think the last five pages determine that like the only conclusion I really have is that, is that like change, especially like when it comes to our sexuality is inevitable and something that we should welcome and invite or else we will always be miserable. And we just have to be, I know that sounds kind of like, I don't know, loosey goosey and like not very political, but I think um, when we try to pin down some like finite, tangible sexual desire and try to square it with the politics and all that, like we're always going to be disappointed because our desires are always going to kind of going to be scrambled. Like when I was writing the last five pages, I mean, I wrote the book in order, which I highly recommend. I really don't think people should try to, I mean, unless it's really like just a, an essay collection or something, you really don't know how the dominoes will fall. And I think that the last chapter would not have been the same if I had like tried to write it a year earlier, because then I had gone through like the depths of COVID I was really in a different place in my my relationship, which is like sort of only described in the book like as this new and exciting relationship. And then all of a sudden we were together all the time 
in the same house 24-7 with no outside, like, contact for a few months, you know, at least. And if I were writing those five pages now, of course, I'd have pregnancy and motherhood to reach for. Um, Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. And I actually, you know, I feel kind of, like, I feel vindicated by my conclusion because that person in, in my book, even though she's only a few years younger than me, just totally seems unrecognizable now. Like I just don't have the same priorities. I still have the desire to discover my desires and I'm still a sexual person and I certainly have thoughts about my romantic life and things like that, but it's just been scrambled by parenthood and before that pregnancy and then before that a pandemic and, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah. So the book feels a little bit like a, like a time capsule. Yeah, and I kind of already knew it was going to feel that way because the person that I was writing about while I was proposing this book was already kind of not me anymore, you know? I can't even channel the person I was like six, seven years ago when I was still in my marriage. That was a totally different version of me and it's so difficult to even remember my my motivations. I mean, now there's there's a record of it in the form of this book, but there's so much inside of me that has changed. Do you think of the book as like a, a call to arms? Like, do you want it to inspire people? What, what are your hopes and ambitions for how it'll be interpreted? The main way I want it to inspire people is to simply start telling the truth of their lives. I think that's why I started, again, I started the book with consciousness raising sessions because here I was in a marriage that wasn't satisfying and I could not be honest about it to myself or anybody around me. And that's kind of like the most upsetting thing. It's like, I'm not even telling you that you must go on this path and explore your desires, but the concept of truth And honesty is very baked into consciousness raising, which in turn is very baked into modern feminism. And, you know, it's starting to happen. I'm like getting a lot of emails from people saying like, you know, I mean, not in these words, but like basically you've inspired me to like break up with my man tomorrow or (laughs) I may not ever break up with my man, but like I'm starting to tell the truth at least to myself, about my relationship. And I think a lot of people, even though I think being open about your feelings and um, acceptance of all kinds of lifestyles is are like two tenets of modern society, I still think there's a lot of silence around dissatisfaction in sex and love. I bumped up against it. Everybody I know has bumped up against it in some way or other even if they're in these like very open communities that are like totally fine with casual sex and totally fine with whatever you want to be. Why do you think that is, Nona? Why, why do you think people are so unable to talk about that specific part of their interior lives? Well, first of all, I think we've been taught that it's your business, it's private. And 
I think the more casual the sex is, the more likely we will tell all the details. But like, I don't know that many people who tell lots of details about their marital sex lives. Because I still think it's like ingrained in us that that is private. But I think also there are norms no matter what community you're in. There are feminist norms. There are norms in like radical countercultural communities. And I think no matter what community you're in, even a community that purports to be super accepting of whatever you want to be, there are norms that you feel that one might feel they have to live up to. I mean, that's what happened to me, at least, that I felt like I was living in a world with feminist norms that I was somehow not meeting the expectations of, namely that if I were in a bad relationship, what's the big deal? I should just be single, you know, like, why are you in this relationship? Um, And the reason I was in, I mean, there were many reasons I was in this relationship, but one of the reasons I point out in the book is that there's a lot of societal reward for being in a committed relationship. And I think that feminists, you know, fought very hard against that concept of marital privilege and marital dependency And so it's kind of embarrassing as a feminist to say, well, I still, I'm afraid what's going to happen if I don't have these benefits. I don't want to let them go. And there was just like not a space to say that. That's just one example of just a feminist norm kind of getting in the way of the truth. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Were there other things, moments, stories, realizations that you put in the book that were embarrassing to write down? Oh my God, Max. So many of these stories were so embarrassing. I feel like there's not too, too much graphic sex in this book, but when it is graphic, it's like very vivid and that's very deliberate. Like I'm not a sensationalist sex writer. Like, I don't even consider myself a sex writer. I consider myself a journalist who sort of has the beat of sexuality and gender, and then also sometimes I bring in my personal life. So I don't usually put, like, sexual details in there. And my editors were kind of like, 
No, no, I think you have to explain exactly what the sex was like in order for us to really understand what you were going through. So your first drafts would like sort of skate along the surface a little bit? Yeah, especially with two people. The first was my husband. He is the guy I'm talking about in the title, you know, and the first chapter. It's called Bad Sex. (laughs) We had bad sex. And I explain why, but it took forever for me to really be able to explain why, because it wasn't like, oh, he was so bad in bed. He didn't know how to like go down on me or whatever. Like it wasn't like about his skills or like what he was willing to do. It was like this somewhat unexplainable like chemistry problem that was really hard to put down on paper. And I really didn't want to like humiliate him or anything, but I also didn't want to be euphemistic because he had given me free reign to write my story. So that wasn't really the issue, but it's kind of hard to explain what was so bad about our sex. So that took a long time. And then there was um, this guy who I call Moore in the book. He was sort of my rebound from my ex. He was a very sort of whirlwind, not quite romance, but not at all casual, kind of like four month affair that I had. And our sex was very central to the relationship and it was so amazing and it was so hot. And like, I also had to explain what was so amazing and hot about it, you know, and why I thought he was so attractive and how I was lavishing attention on his body in a way that I had never lavished attention on a man's body before. And I had to really describe his body. And there are just a few lines in there that like I blush every time I look at them, but the, I, I find them to be necessary. Was it easier to write about more than about Aaron, your ex-husband? Like, is it, is it easier to write about quote unquote good sex than bad sex? It is easier to write about quote unquote good sex than bad sex, but there was this internalized voice when I was writing about the good sex that I pictured sort of like an older, very serious literary man who was like, (laughs) I can't believe you're talking about like dicks and pussies right now when you're trying to get taken seriously, young lady, you know, like I kind of had that, that voice in my head of like, do you write a really sexually explicit paragraph and still get taken seriously as a woman who's having a lot of sex. I feel like even the term sex writer, like even I, I did it five minutes ago. I kind of said like, I'm not a sex writer. Like I distanced myself from doing that even, which I guess was wrong because I do write about sex and I do try to describe sex. And a few people have told me like, damn girl, like this book's kind of steamy. Like this book's hot. Like it made me horny. And I was like, really? Like that was not... (laughs) at all my um, intention. (laughs) But I think if you describe sex, especially good sex, with a lot of detail, that is going to be a byproduct. And I did sort of feel a little bashful about that. Like, oh, this isn't like real literature because it's like maybe titillating. It's funny to me that that person you were thinking of was like a, like old toity literary man. Because I think 
if I had written that book, I would have just been thinking about everyone I know the whole time. Like, I would have just been thinking about people I was going to, like, go to a bar with the next day. Was that a hang-up for you at all, or did you not give a shit? Or if you did give a shit, did you just get over it? How does that work? I mean, I think that for better or for worse, I've always been a person who's in the habit of talking about, like, the hot sex that I've had. Like, it's kind of my personal brand in some ways. In some ways, it's performative, right? Like, I... I could not talk about the bad sex in my life because I was the girl who had good sex, you know? So everybody in my life knows how hot the sex was between me and more. Like probably an inappropriate amount of people know about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What was nerve wracking was admitting that I had kind of lied to people about my relationship with Aaron. Like even my very best friends who like sensed some of this, but we weren't really talking about it. And that felt bad, like I had deceived people in some way, but I tried to explain why. Um, That was like what I was more worried about. Like I was telling the real story behind some of the posturing and also just some of the like manic energy of a breakup. Like I think that if you've gone through a major breakup, I think, something happens to you. You're, you're kind of not all there. Like you're going on this journey and you don't have very much perspective and it's extremely, extremely intense and you're acting a little nuts. And (laughs) (laughs) I just, I tried to kind of explain that energy in the book too, of like this manic, just broken up person who's like now part of this club, who's like full of people who have kind of taken this big step at an age where it's really scary to take that step, especially as a woman. So I was worried about like admitting that, that I was like a little weird and crazy and self-centered during that time. Have either of those things come to pass? I mean, we're talking a couple of weeks after the book has come out, have like, um, you know, uh, toity old literary men told you that you're no longer a serious writer or have your friends been wildly uncomfortable with the gap between how your life was actually going and what you were telling them like like what has the reaction been to the book I feel like my friends have been really moved by the um by the chapters that describe my feelings of isolation and my feelings of repression and not being able to talk to them so that hasn't been very scary I've been really afraid of what my ex-husband thinks, um, but so far that part has been okay. He even showed up to the Brooklyn reading in good faith, and I signed his book and everything, and he said that he had read the first couple of chapters. Previously, he had said he wasn't ready to read the book, which like I totally understand. But again, he was very generous with his story because he was like, maybe I want to talk about our marriage in a film one day. I want to reserve that right. So go ahead and write about it in a book. Like, you know, I trust you basically, but I'm still a little nervous about what he's going to think. And in terms of the hoity-toity literary men, I wouldn't say anybody prominent has come out and said anything like that, but a lot of like random older white dudes are up in my inbox, Max. Like I have to tell you, Really? They are showing up. Yes. I was totally not prepared. I think it's the New York Times' fault. The New York Times, you know, God bless him, 
has featured this book several times <laughs> in several ways, which is like kind of a shock to me, actually. Um, and so like you get all the New York Times readers like taking liberties and like writing you emails. And a lot of them are like older white men. What are they writing? Well, some of them are actually really sweet. And they're like, thank you for this perspective. But then others are saying exactly what I was worried about. Like, why are you wasting your time on these questions? These are like such dumb questions. Like, also they assume, not that this would be a problem, but they assume wrongly that I'm like a sad 40-year-old single woman, you know, that like, look what you've done now with your life. Like, aren't you so, (laughs) aren't you so regretful that you broke up this marriage and now you have nothing? And again, like, I'm not saying I'm like, my life is like so much better because I'm partnered and like happen to be partnered and have a baby. Like I was prepared to be single for the rest of my life because that sounded better than being in an unfulfilling marriage to me. But it's just so funny that, that like a certain type of person will assume that and go there and use that to insult you. That's such a wild way to spend your time to write an email like that. Like I just... (laughs) <laughs> I don't understand. I like. I actually don't understand what the point is. Like, what are they like expecting a response in that situation? Do you write back to these people? No, I definitely don't write back to them. But I think people get very defensive when you tell them to reexamine their love life, their private life. I mean, I think another reaction that I've been a little taken aback by is. Several writers have zeroed in on my thoughts about monogamy and gotten very defensive and sort of made the argument like, clearly you want monogamy and you're still denying your desires after all this time. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I think people get very threatened by discussions about monogamy and non-monogamy. And I don't even feel like that chapter is heavy handed or saying that nobody should be monogamous or anything, or even that like polyamory is like the answer. I still feel very ambivalent about it. But what I don't feel ambivalent about though, is that monogamy shouldn't necessarily be a default because it's clearly not really working the way it was intended. Like I do make the argument that the mass indoctrination of monogamy is an issue, it's a problem, um, and it closes doors to other ways of thinking about relationships because a majority of people end up, quote-unquote, cheating. I hate, hate that word, but like betraying their partners and having sex with or having affairs with other people anyway. And so many people are loath to even talk about some sort of spectrum of non-monogamy And it's because jealousy is a really awful, awful feeling. I mean, I go into the physical pain of jealousy in this book. Another thing that my editor pressed me to do, because she was like, you're saying that it's awful, but how is it awful? How did you feel it in your body? And I was like, oh, you feel jealousy in your body. It's a terrible feeling. And I think people go to great lengths to never feel jealousy. But I actually think that the strength and the potency of jealousy is what makes it interesting politically. And 
just like every other emotion or every other reaction to a situation, there are societal reasons for why we feel jealousy and societal reasons why we feel like our pride has been hurt or like that we've been disrespected in some way. Like we're all raised to think that monogamy equals respect. And if you're not in a monogamous relationship, you're somehow being disrespected. At least that was like sort of how it came out with me. But I think that there are a lot of people now, there's like a sort of sex positive backlash or there's a backlash to sex positivity that's going on right now. And a subset of the argument is kind of like, women need to admit that they want more commitment and more emotional um, support in their relationships. I would actually argue that everyone should admit that they like want more emotional support in their relationships. But it is true that more women than men appear to want commitment. And that's fine. That's a legitimate desire. But there are reasons for those those desires. It's not just like some intrinsic thing that men happen to not want commitment and women happen to want it. Like there are very specific social and cultural reasons that go back centuries that would make that true. And it's the same thing for monogamy and jealousy. That makes sense to me. It does feel totally like that's, that's in a way that's kind of what the whole book is about, right? Just trying to, trying to get context for these incredibly intimate desires and feelings that very, very few people find the space in their lives to talk about. Yeah. I mean, it is exactly what it's about. I think, like I said, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily the most common way to think about one's life, but I was raised in a very particular way so that I can't just have some private life that does not interact or have a dialogue with my values. You know what I mean? I have particular values about what I want sex and love to look like in the future, about reproductive freedom, about freedom to have alternative styles of relationships. And yet I was socialized in the past and I live in the present. So it's hard to kind of make that actually happen in real time. There's one other person's uh, reaction to the book that I'm curious what your thoughts are. And, and that's your mom. And we haven't talked about her very much, but she's such a huge part of the book. I mean, in a way, the whole book is kind of a conversation with her. And reading it and reading her writing in the book, it makes you think like, this is kind of like known as family trade, you know, like you're, you're following in some footsteps. And part of what your mom did was write about things that other people weren't writing about, try and talk about things that other people weren't talking about. And I wonder what you think she would think of the book. Uh, I think about that every day of my life. First of all, um, she died when I was 22, which was pretty much, when my career started, I mean, I probably had written like three piddling little pieces of journalism at that point. And then the rest of it 
came after her death. So I've constantly wondered what she would have thought about my work. <laughs> In terms of this book, I mean, it would be very different if she was alive. I, I'm not actually sure how much she would allow me to reveal. There are some really, really vulnerable diary entries of hers that I include that maybe she wouldn't have been keen to let me include. Um, but I think they're important because they reveal an extra layer of ambivalence and doubt and pain than just her writing, which often incorporated personal aspects of her life, but like in this very contained way. And so I think if it weren't about her, <laughs> she'd be, I think she'd be really proud no matter what. But I also do think she was kind of weirdly a private person. We have had really different personalities. Like I, like I said before, I sort of performed my hypersexuality. I was like this body in your face chick who like loved to talk about sex. And like, I don't really think that my mom was like that on a personal level. She certainly didn't talk to me about sex. She had really strong boundaries between us two for better or for worse. I mean, I think in some ways it was great. She really gave me a lot of privacy and like would never be one of those moms who would like ransack my room to find my diary or anything like that. So that was actually lovely and refreshing. I knew a lot of moms like that and it was not okay. But at the same time, I really didn't really feel like I could talk to her about this stuff. Like maybe it was just because she was like my lame mom and maybe if I had tried she would have been great about it, but she also just like didn't offer. I feel like also sometimes those conversations come in your late twenties and early thirties. Like they, they come a little after the time you had with her, you know? Right. Exactly. I didn't really have any adult time with her. I mean, I just barely stopped being a teenager and teenagers are world's most self-involved people and I wasn't really like thinking about what my mom could teach me about life you know I had had sort of like intellectual collaborations with her like she edited all my essays at Wesleyan she really helped me out with my thesis there which was about 1970s porn and the sexual revolution which is actually the first time that I got introduced to a lot of the characters that show up in this book. Um, and that's kind of what my thesis was about. And I interviewed my mom for it. And I asked her for some reading recommendations. And it was really the first time I had engaged her in that intellectual level. And so then after that, you know, months later, she died. And so I think that, yes, I might have consulted her when I was having trouble in my marriage and I was trying to figure out whether I should leave. But I could also picture her being very, very hands-off about the whole thing. Like, she might have just said, like, I am not going to weigh in on this. This is something that you need to figure out for yourself. Like, she was a good listener, but she wasn't an advice giver, you know? What kind of editor was she? I mean, by all accounts, she was an amazing one for me. She was my first editor, so I didn't really know what an editor could be. I mean, she was just my mom. But you know how there's like two kinds of editors. One, they sort of just like have a spidey sense of what it's supposed to be like and they 
insert their own words and do all kinds of rearranging and they take it upon themselves basically to do it and that kind of editor depending on whether you agree with them you're either like oh great I don't have to do my edits myself or you're like oh my god what have you done with my work um I'm frankly one of those editors I I kind of I'm like I know exactly how this is gonna go I'm gonna move this paragraph over here she was not that kind of editor she asked open-ended questions a lot um is this really what you mean to say? Rather than being like, I think this synonym is better. Um, But then also she had a lot of random suggestions that were always really good. I was like, oh, she was like, take this or leave this. But I think this one sentence should go over here. And then you were like, oh yeah, of course it should go over here. I just, but honestly, Max, I mean, the, the writing I was doing at 22 is nothing like the writing that I'm doing now. Sure. So I have no, I, I mean, I could only imagine the kind of editing relationship we would have had. You edited two collections of hers after she died? Yeah. So I was the one to put together her archives for the Radcliffe Institute. It was really one of the first things I did after she died. It was like, a very cathartic and intense experience for me. I was in my dad's basement in Queens and I was sifting through all her work and she was a very meticulous record keeper and she had all of her clips very, very organized and there was this huge stack of these New Yorker rock critic pieces. She was the rock critic for the New Yorker for several years in the late 60s up until the mid-70s, which I had known... But I wasn't like a big pop culture writer person. Like there's a whole culty like world of like music criticism, you know, and she was not really included in that canon. Like she was known more for like her feminist writing and later her like straight up political writing. But she was really one of the first women to insert herself into that conversation. A couple other people actually approached me about doing an anthology right after she died. And I was like, no, I read all that stuff. Like, I'm going to do it. But then when that came out, she was like only known to a lot of people as a music critic. And that also didn't seem right. I was like, she stopped being a music critic in 1975, you guys. It was really important to her because the context of the counterculture was very connected to rock and roll and music. But she's not like a music critic like by profession I think in some ways her other writing is more important no offense guys um (laughs) and so I felt like I had to like rejigger the public narrative again because she had like now become kind of posthumously famous for being a rock critic and I was like well wait until you read all of her other stuff actually um (laughs) so that's like how that second anthology came to be But yeah, it's been a lot of sort of grieving my mother through keeping her legacy alive, which honestly, that is the source of like weird shame that I have too. Like, um, that was something I was nervous about with this book. Like, why are you always talking about your mom? You know? Um, And I think the reason why I'm always talking about her is because 
like not only is she my mom and I lost her very early, but like she really truly would have had some wisdom to impart on my life because I'm going through so many of the same things that she went through. Well, that's part of what I think makes the book so incredible, Nona, is like in a way you're getting that advice and in another way it's really like um, it's a love letter to her, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I I I try to not be um like I do criticize her sometimes. I like call her out at times for being like uh reductive or like a little like just concealing some stuff that's going on in her personal life that like m- would have been great to know like in the context of something she was writing about. And of course she's like entitled to her privacy. Like I don't need her to spill her guts out every time she writes. She wasn't like a memoirist, but there were a lot of contradictions about the way her personal life squared with her politics, like everybody else. And like, she's just like no exception. I didn't even really experience that as calling her out so much as realizing that those contradictions existed for her too. Yeah. Well, not calling her out, but I think, I think like with the anthologies, if I had stopped there, it would have just been like, look how great my mother is. Like, she's so amazing. It would have been like, hey, geography. And I think this was more like engaging with her ideas. And there were some blind spots that she had. That's what I'm trying to say. She didn't think much about heterosexuality and what it meant. She really had a blind spot about like race. There were just like certain moments where I was like, wishing she would have pushed harder or wishing we could talk about it now, you know? I got one more question for you and then I'll let you go. And it's a, uh, it's a heavy one, but you know, as we were talking about at the beginning, the book was ambitious. It was like three books in one. It was a divorce memoir and a history of the sexual revolution and second wave feminism and also a sort of biography and conversation with your mother and I guess I, I'm just wondering Nona like did this project give you closure I really do feel like there's been closure like I think I've been circling around figuring out my mom and and learning all there is to possibly know about her and I think that that'll never end like on a personal level but on an intellectual level I feel like this is a real end because she's this like ghost in my life of intellectual and emotional importance and now I've like finally grappled with her unfinished business you know like I think I really needed to write something about her legacy that wasn't just like an anthology of like how great she was and really needed to wrestle with it and then kind of like let it go like I feel like a relief that like I've kind of written everything I probably need to write about my mom even though I'll always think about her and talk about her I think about her every day multiple times a day especially now that I am a mom there are so many questions I want to ask her now about this experience that I never even thought to ask. Little granular things like when did I first sleep through the night and like 
what did my hair look like at four months, things like that, but also bigger questions like you and my dad always claimed to do this parenting thing 50-50, but now that I've done newbornhood and I've breastfed and I know you breastfed, like how did you literally do 50-50? You didn't, like come on, (laughs) explain what, I'm really like sort of grappling with this question of like how biology gets in the way of equal parenting and like that is something I really want to talk to my mom about because if you ask her in like her writing, it just appears that they had this like idyllic 50, 50 feminist relationship. But like now I know that that's so hard in early newbornhood. So that's something I want to ask her. So yeah, I'll always sort of like want to continue my personal relationship with her and will never be able to, but I think I've ended like my intellectual exploration of her work. Nona, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Seth Kelly. Thanks to Seth. Our intern was Megan Valley. Thanks to Megan. Our friends at Vox are people that we make this show with. Thanks to them. And thanks so much to Nona for taking the time to talk to me about her book. It's called Bad Sex. Go pick it up. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.